So one of us should actually start the show. We should. <laughs> I figured since you were doing the music, you were. I get to hit the flashy button things now. <laughs> you are welcome to hit the flashy buttons. <laughs> welcome. Yeah, and I'm trying out. I'm trying out a forced green background for, yes, for me. So so I look smarter than I am. Yes. Yep. It constantly is taken away from your head. So I bet you when I get there, you know, my head will be like reduced several sizes by the virtual program. They're like, nobody's head is that big. Nobody's head is that big. It has to be the background. It gave me a warning when I was trying to work on this yesterday. OBS crashed twice and said that there was a critical size warning. (laughs) (laughs) It must have been about your books. The critical size. Too many books. Too many books. Can't fit them all in the frame. People don't read that much anymore. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no it's it's good it's fine welcome to the show um if you don't know who we are i am pastor will harley and i am joined here with uh, pastor dave rudat and we are not in the same location as we we normally try to be for uh our thursday podcast but that's okay we're going to try to bring you the same content same sense of humor um and uh, same sarcasm that i am known for and what are you bringing to the table what am I bringing to the table? <laughs> Theological goodness. Really. Christ? Can I bring Christ? Or is he already here? Well, we have to have two in order to have Christ. So here we go. Yeah. Because uh, of so me, Christ is here. Let's put it that way. There you go. There you go. Um, so thank you for joining us. Uh, this is a, a podcast of living faith and um, living life. And so we do enjoy having you with us. We are continuing our look at the book of Esther. And so we'll probably get back into that before we do that. Realize that we are not intentionally giving you any triggers that you will uh, fly off the handle and, and, and hate everything that we have to say. But it can happen, especially in today's day and age. And so please take everything that you say with a little bit of a grain of salt realize it's a conversation between two pastors as we converse. Um, They're going to be bouncing ideas off of each other, as well as just sort of saying what's coming to our mind. And if you'd like to to further discuss and have a conversation with us, we would very much enjoy that. You can reach us at our email, so castingnetspod at gmail.com, or you can catch us here on Facebook and put something in the comments, or preferably in person at St. John's Lutheran Church in Maribel. That is where I hail from. Or you can go up to the place that surely you should know, and that is Emmanuel in Shirley, Wisconsin, where you will find Pastor Dave Rudat. I think that's everything, yeah? Yeah. Today we're looking at the book of Esther, chapters 7 and 8. And So without further ado, let's get some flashy button pushing and the music. I do like the comments that uh, they're looking at Will and saying that he's an alien in the midst of transporting down to Earth, and it's just not quite getting there, not quite materializing. It's a good comment. That is very true. I have to say something when someone mentions something about Star Trek. You have to acknowledge it because it is such a— This is better. (laughs) Yes, you have two different libraries there. Are Are either one of those actually your library books or not? 
No, he just you just there muted you just muted yourself. I just muted myself. I know. There you go. That's what I can do. But then people don't have to worry about it. I just, just disappear from the conversation. <laughs> so no, um, so I don't have a really awesome green screen that goes behind me like uh, uh, we do at the uh, at the Shirley campus for for yes. Pastor Rudat, and so I had to try to force a green screen um, through the computer to try to outline me and. Uh, my head is just too big. So. Yes. So let's get into the good stuff. Esther, you want to give us some background in going into Esther 7? Please? So, yeah. Um, we, we have. Um, we, so giving, a, giving the background, we had some really bad situations. Esther gets uh, put into. She ends up being the queen. Uh, it's a loveless relationship, and yet she still is, is dedicated to that. Uh, Mordecai, um, years go by, and uh, Mordecai is uh, still looking out for Esther for the best that he can and uh, ends up getting into a little bit of kerfuffle with um, a man by the name of Haman, who is an Agagite. And uh, there is no love lost between the Jews and the Agagites because of some longstanding uh, background um, and baggage that they carry. And what happens as they uh, interplay, of course, is Mordecai does not give Haman the respect that he, he feels that he should, which is a, a fourth commandment issue on Mordecai's part. Um, and then Haman decides that not only is he going to destroy the Jews, which he possibly had planned already, he's decided he's also going to go right against Mordecai. And so um, he convinces the, the king to uh, not only accept his bribe so that he can go through with this genocide, um, but the king also gives him the signet ring to release out there into the world um, the plan on when this is all going to happen. And so you have the casting of lots or the purr. Um, so it would fall on the 12th month of the 13th day that they were going to do this purge of the Jews. And when Mordecai gets a, a handle on that, and he, he kind of understands that, he um, and the rest of the Jews, they start to, to express their um, sorrow. And he dresses in sackcloth, and he sits in front of the gate so that um, Esther can see him. Esther doesn't know what's going on, so she sends down clothes for him. Uh, he refuses to dress. He says, I can't dress when this is going to happen to our people. And he says, Esther, you got to do something. And she says, what can I do? <laughs> she's, she's like, if I go in front of the king, I'm going to die. And he said, well, something has to be done. And maybe uh, you were placed in a position to do just this. And so she does. Uh, she she, she uh, is very, very wise in how she goes about um, going to make her request. And um, she goes and has a banquet and invites the king to the banquet and Haman to the banquet. And when Haman leaves the banquet, he is just on cloud nine thinking that everything is great. The queen loves him. The king loves him. Um, and he runs across Mordecai. And Mordecai still does not love him. <laughs> and so he uh, um, essentially gets very, very upset. And... Um, and again, uh, Haman believes that everything has been destroyed from him and everything is, is uh, uh, nothing is good because Mordecai is alive. And so he sets up a plan to kill Mordecai. And when he goes to tell the king about it, the king says, what do I do for the person who uh, 
who's really done a service to me into the kingdom. And uh, um, it ends up that Mordecai, or Haman thinks he's talking about him when really he's talking about Mordecai. And uh, Haman is forced to go and give uh, Mordecai praise from the king. And this is where we pick up now at the end of, of chapter 6. Chapter 6 ends with, with uh, uh, Haman all dejected because he had to praise Mordecai. And his wife is saying, well, it's over. You're done. Um, your, your plot is, is, is essentially kaputs. And uh, um, he still has a dinner. He, he had one banquet. Now he's going to go to another banquet. And that's where seven and eight come in. And I have just, I have um, amazed you to the point that you have a smile plastered on your face. <laughs> on my screen, you're frozen. Just so <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. let's get into chapter seven. So the king and Haman went to the feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, when they were again drinking wine, the king said to Esther, what is your request, Queen Esther? It will be given to you. What are you seeking? Up to half the kingdom, it's yours. Queen Esther responded, My king, if I have found favor in your eyes, and if it pleases the king, I am asking that my life be spared, and I am seeking the lives of my people, because I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If it were merely, merely being sold to be male and female slaves, I would have remained silent, because that would not have been bad enough to be reason to bother the king. King Xerxes spoke up. He said to Queen Esther, Who is this, and where is this person who had the audacity to do this? Esther said, This hateful enemy is this evil Haman. Haman was terrified in the presence of the king and the queen. The king rose angrily from the place where they were drinking wine and went to the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther because he saw the king was determined to do something bad to him. Yeah, there you go. So she finally, she finally says something. She does, um, and and interestingly enough, she doesn't accuse the king of anything um, of accepting a bribe, but she does bring it up. She's like, "My people were sold," um, and and so maybe you get some of these ideas in here that maybe Xerxes didn't know exactly what was going on, and that Xerxes maybe didn't have an understanding of of. The people, I, I guess that would be the um, the best construction. The best construction is that that Haman uh, or uh, Haman didn't give him all the information, and Xerxes didn't really pursue and do his due diligence to find out that information that needed to happen. Um, so there's an entire possibility there. Um, I think one of the things that you 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 kind of see the brilliance in Esther is is she does not equate it with, okay, so um, you have to do something because. Because I'm I'm at fault, or I'm going to be be um, in trouble. He frames it, or she frames it in. This is going to harm harm you, Xerxes. This is going to harm your kingdom, um, and that is going to have more of a resounding effect on the king uh, than just saying, "Well, I feel threatened." Although he she says that, um, she really says it's going to harm you more than anything else. So. There's also another amazing thing about uh, Xerxes that we have not seen before, and that is uh, a little bit of self-restraint. Yeah, he leaves, goes to the palace garden. Yes. But he's still furious, so it just is uh, 
Um, white, like you have said before, his emotions have been wild, up and down, up and down, unpredictable. And so he leaves because he's upset. Um, and uh, this gives an opportunity for Heyman to plead for his life, but that doesn't go well for him. Right. No, he it doesn't. Um, and, and I think you have some... I don't know. Maybe it's reading into the text a little bit. I, I wonder if Xerxes is is feeling a little bit of guilt at this time because I think he he begins to remember his place in this as well. Um that that he didn't I guess maybe I'm giving maybe I'm giving Xerxes too much um time or too many um opportunities to 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 not be at fault, but maybe he didn't do his due diligence. He should have done his due diligence. And so he, he kind of recognizes his own guilt in this more likely. It probably has something to do with the fact that Heyman is a, a trusted advisor. And um, this is now uh, kind of a wake up call to him that, that maybe he had people placed in positions that shouldn't have been played and they were using him. Um, and so he had to really take stock as to, to what's going on. Um, those are, I'm reading into a lot of Xerxes that I, that I don't know the man. So, yeah, that's a fascinating observation of the, the, I think all of us at one time had somebody that we trusted and then are realized that we've been betrayed, that they were using us for something or other. And that does take some time to process because you're like, okay, everything I knew about this individual was wrong. Uh, I thought they were one way, but now this has been revealed that they are another way. Um, so that I could see that. I could see the reason why he would want to recuse himself because he wants to be very careful about how he proceeds because if Heyman is in position of power, if he has entrenched himself amongst the uh, other advisors of the king to move against the king, to move against him has you know all those political moverings, he's got to put some thought into, okay, how am I going to handle this? Uh, right. betrayal on how am I going to re, re, regain my position as the, the top dog. Right. Well, and I think you have another opera. Uh, you have another thing that's going to be going on here too, is, is, um, you know, recognizing that the, the Medes and the Persians were in a patriarchal society. Um, so very much they were in a society where, where the men, what the men said kind of was taken more than what women might've said. Um, and if and if his wife is accusing uh, Haman of of such a feat or such a thing, um, what happens after that is: Do you believe the queen, or do you do you believe the male uh, who who's saying, "Well, maybe I didn't do it." Um, so you have a lot of things that are going on there. There was a, a good question, and and I don't know if we can answer it um, precisely, but there was a very very good question um, given here. Just how old is Xerxes? Um, roughly. And I don't know if I can give you um, a definitive answer to his age, but I can say the tradition was that the men were older than their wives by quite a bit. Um, the, the, the tradition, um, especially in that day and age, because of um, how hard it was for childbirth and, and the like, women married very, very young. And then their husbands were older. So, I mean, it, it wouldn't have been outside of the realm of possibility that Esther was still in her teens um, when she married. Um, now, there has been some years that have progressed, of course, um, but that she would have been still, if maybe the low 20s, I don't even think that that old. 
Um, Xerxes probably would have been in his 40s, if not 50s. Um, and that would probably be a very close rough estimate at the time uh, to, to give for his age. And, and like I said, that's just based on cultural things. Um, there's nowhere in scripture that we're told what their ages were. So, All right. um, yeah, so let's continue on. Let's continue on with, with what's going on. Verse seven. The king rose angrily from the place where they were drinking wine and went to the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther because he saw the king was determined to do something bad to him. Just as the king was returning from the palace garden to the hall where they had been drinking wine, Haman was falling onto the couch on which Esther was lying. The king said, will he even assault the queen while I'm in the building? As soon as the words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. In addition, Harbona, one of the eunuchs present with the king, said, You know, there is a gallows 75 feet high standing in the house of Haman, which he made for Mordecai, the person who spoke up for the benefit of the king. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which had been prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Yeah. So now we have again um you I wouldn't call it coincidence but the Lord using the situations for um his purpose. I I'm not exactly sure how to picture what has happened. Um so when I was teaching the kids this and and they were kind of looking at it like what are they talking about that that you know Haman fell, right? Um and she, he happened he was falling onto the couch and and, and I'm trying to explain it and trying to picture, I said, you know, have you ever had those occurrences where you, you, you kind of got down on your knees or, you know, you were maybe, um, trying to stand up from, from sitting on the floor and you kind of stumbled or you kind of, you know, fell forward a, a little bit. And, and that's kind of what I'm, I'm picturing, um, that he is, he, he, either wanted to to beg for his life so he became prostrate on the ground so that he, he you know kind of fell to the ground and in his attempt to get back up because the king was coming in and so in his attempt to get back up he either reached out to try to brace himself and um he fell forward uh or or something along those lines i think either way the perception was assault right i think that's the the perception um, that whatever happened, he put him he put himself in a compromising situation where um, it was perceived as assault. And the the cool thing is, or I I find interesting, is when Xerxes, or at least I get the understanding, when Xerxes came in, he had already had a decision that he was going to let Haman go. That that this was he was going to kind of bygones be bygones type of thing, or or maybe have some type of a, a, a penalty, but nothing severe. But it's when he sees this perceived assault that tipped the scales. Yeah, that's one way to look at it. I think of it if, if you're following the line of, lot, lot of, line of logic where he has been betrayed, that he doesn't know Haman anymore, where he has composed himself and says, okay, I'm going to do something, and now all of a sudden this is the 
this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. So whatever the response was, he increased it, you know, tenfold or whatever it was, you know, when he saw this happening going on. Because you could see if someone is betrayed and then all of a sudden they do something even more of a betrayal, boy, that would really set somebody over the edge. Again, either either way, we, we can't say for sure. I'm just we're just playing out the possibilities. Sure. I like here. what you're I like what you're saying though that that you know it was one portrayal after another that you know he and and we do realize and maybe that's something to be said um, in that culture um, the taking of another person's wife was uh, was an establishment of authority. And, and so if he thought, well, I'm going to get rid of, so if the king thought, okay, he's trying to get rid of Mordecai who helped me, maybe he's part of that coup. He wanted to destroy the people of Mordecai. Um, maybe he's part of that. Maybe they are a benefit and he's trying to get rid of them. Uh, he's trying to get rid of my own wife because she's a benefit to me. Um, and so you're, you're adding up, you're adding up, you're adding up. Then he comes in and he sees what is the perceived assault. And he's thinking, okay, now he's trying to take what is mine. And that, like you said, breaks the camel back. Um, yes, it is. And and thank you, Rachel, for the comment. Um, it does seem that Xerxes, <laughs> he he goes from one extreme to the other extreme. Um, he is an unhinged individual. We we kind of can get to see that uh, a little bit. Um, and he does not put the best construction on anything. Um, so. So they hang Haman. So this is uh, the end of him. On the very yeah. instrument in which he created for the um, the, the the killing of another individual of sure. Mordecai, his mortal enemy. I, I I would like to say and just bring up again when we first discuss him building that ham uh, that 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 gallow. There is some discrepancy as to whether or not it was a hangman's noose or if it was just sure. a pike. Sure. Um, so whatever it was. Now Haman has. He's receiving benefit. the benefit of it. Yes, he's, <laughs> he's receiving the, the purpose for which it was built. Right. Goes to Haman. Um, the interesting part, though, and, and this also, I think, goes, I, th I think, can be accredited to Xerxes' um, forethought. And, and we'll just say it that way. He doesn't go and kill his entire family. So, so even though he sees this slight in Haman, he doesn't go through and <clears throat> and say, "Well, we're going to destroy your children, and we're going to kill your your wife, and we're going to take your lands, and we're going to do all these things." Um, <clears throat> of course, that comes later, <laughs> but but it's it's not one of those things where he goes and he he kills them outright. So I, I don't know if that says anything about his patience or is that says anything about his um, forbearance or if that's just Xerxes, he, he's very reactive. He reacts to one situation and doesn't really think through what the other situations can be. I, I don't know how to, how to take some of that. So let's, let's read some of that then in verse in chapter eight that worked for you. That does work for me. That day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai came and appeared before the king because Esther had told him what Mordecai's relationship to her was. The king took off his signet ring that he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. Esther put Mordecai in charge of the house of Haman. 
In addition, Esther spoke to the king. She fell at his feet, wept, and requested that he put an end to the evil plan that Haman the Agagite had devised against the Jews. The king held out the golden scepter to Esther, so Esther rose and stood in the presence of the king. She said, If it is acceptable to the king, if I have found favor before him, if this idea seems right to the king, and if I am acceptable to him, a decree should be written to nullify the letters for the plot of Haman, son of Amadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews and all of the providence of the king. For how can I watch the disaster that is about to come to my people? How can I watch the destruction of my relatives? King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Look, have give, I have given Haman's house to Esther. They have hanged him on the gallows because he raised his hand against the Jews. You can write concerning the Jews whatever seems good to you and seal it with the king's signet ring, because the document written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring cannot be changed. How about that? That's good. So a couple of things going on. It tells us, again, that uh, the family hasn't been has not been destroyed. So we have no indication of, of uh, um, Haman's wife being killed, children being killed. Uh, land is taken away. Property is taken away. Position is taken away. Um, and, and then given to Esther. Interestingly enough, um, you have the, the, the pickup of Mordecai. Now the truth is coming out. Um, Esther introduces Mordecai as who he is, not only her cousin, but also as the adopted father. So that tells us that, that Mordecai is older Uncle, than, yep. than Esther. Um, and so she, he was more of a father figure to her, um, even though he was a cousin to her. Uncle. And so cousin. Cousin? Yeah, I thought uncle too. And then I had to go. I, that was one of the things I'm like, huh. I always thought it was that he was more of an uncle, but it said uh, in verse seven of, of uh, chapter two, Mordecai had raised his cousin. Oh, okay. So I always thought uncle too. Um, and yeah, oh, never mind. The scriptures say cousin. So must be a cousin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll stand corrected on that. Um, so, but there's a, there's definite age difference. And, mm -hmm. and there's a respect difference. Um, one of the things, and there's so much to comment on, I'm sure, um, but <laughs> I just, um, I want to comment on this and I want to turn it over to you for any other side comments, but Zerx, it, I, I find this super humorous. Xerxes removes Haman, chapter seven, because of his threatening of the queen and then the perceived assault in the king's house of, of the queen. That's why he re that's why he removes Haman. That's why he kills Haman. That's that was the the straw that broke the camel's back. Then when he talks to to Mordecai in verse seven of chapter eight, um, he says, oh, yeah, I got rid of him because he raised his hand against the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he almost seems like a guy that is that I'm going to tell you whatever I can tell you that is going to seem like the best for the predicament. Yeah. It puts Xerxes in the best light as if he were, was some sort of hero for a group right. of people, but it has, it has nothing. The reality, the truth is completely different. Although to think of from God's point of view, Xerxes is doing this to deliver the, the people of, 
uh, his covenant people. Um, but so in this case, you have Xerxes kind of speaking the truth, but not from his own perspective. It's just the truth from God's own perspective. Sure, sure. Does that make sense? Like, no, it, it I, I really like your insight about, yeah, he's, he's completely making this political, completely making this to point, paint himself in the best possible light. Like he is this great hero of the, of the people of his empire when really it was all about, um, him stumbling in, in that perceived betrayal. Sure. I mean, it, the, it, cause you go back into the book. I mean, he accepted a bribe to kill these, these people. He, he didn't really care that Haman was going to kill a, a do complete genocide. Um, he, it didn't seem like he really cared at all about anything until he heard, well, I feel threatened. And then, and then he said uh, until Esther said, Oh, I feel threatened. I feel my life is in danger. And he said, who would ever do that to you? And, and he's like, she's like, Haman, well, that's the turning point. He could care less if it was the, he, and then, no, but now it's the Jews. Um, and, and I think you have, I mean, you have a lot of these things that the Lord placed in, in, in the history that come together. You know, the Jews helped him, right? They, they helped by, by removing a coup. Um, Esther has proven herself to be reliable, faithful, and, and very, um, very much, a, a an important figure. You have all these things coming together, so I can understand where he would backpedal, and he's trying to repaint things into uh, a different light. You also have at the the very end of, of the section that we read up to, kind of more insight into the Persian Medo Persian law system, um, where where you have um, Xerxes saying, "Okay, you can write another law, you can write another edict, but I I can't change the one that went out." So so you have the problem of um, kind of what's going on in in well, what's going on in the, the the whole framework of a law went out, it's going to happen. I can't stop it, even if Haman's dead. It it's going to happen. But now we have to make a counter law to counter the law that I had put out. Um, doesn't that remind you of another? government so i can't get rid of the one that's there but we can write another one that counters the one that's there so that both of them don't really mean anything (laughs) (laughs) again it's all all about perception the king cannot be perceived as someone who makes a mistake especially if he's perceived in the middle eastern world as he is some sort of deity in human form he can't make mistakes he can't be uh, human, so therefore we have to paint him in a, the best possible light that he is this great magnanimous, never makes mistakes, always is looking ahead. Instead, yeah, we have this. Yeah. So you get a whole bunch of laws, one law stating one thing and another law stating something else to counter what the mistake was of the first one. So, yeah, it's pretty much what you get. Um, anything else? Let me look here. Um that's about all I had. Uh, other than, uh, I mean, probably worth saying, Mordecai has made the new advisor to the king. So, um, no longer at the gate, now inside the house. He's got Haman's yep. position. Yep. And also, it's a it's a foretelling event, um, sort of her- heralding back to Haman having to dress Mordecai up in the king's clothing, wearing a king's crown, wearing a uh, riding on the king's horse. Um, really showing Haman as the the really the high advisor. Um, and so you had that sort of a foreshadow of now what happens. He he now has the signet ring. He can make edicts um, in the name of the king. 
as as that advisor. So you got a good turn of events. Of course, you know, this we see the Lord behind all of this, right? We we would say this, you know, this is it's in the scriptures because it is inspired. Why is it inspired? Because we're seeing the Holy Spirit. We see God, the Father, God, the Son, uh, all three of them working behind the scenes to accomplish what needs to accomplish. Um, and, and I think that's a really good lesson for us all to look at this and say, so many things we think in life are coincidence. Is it really coincidence or is it the spirit maneuvering things for his will and his purpose and his plans, um, for the betterment of his people? Um, and I think sometimes we don't give, and, and this is coming up into Pentecost, a, a great time to say it, we don't give the Holy Spirit enough credit in working uh, in all areas of life and in all things, uh, giving gifts and, and maneuvering and working, even when sin happens, using it for the purpose of God's will, right, in life. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, even when we are praying prayers that we don't know how to express correctly, he intercedes on behalf of us and is able to interpret that. So, it's Or just, if you're in the book of Esther, never praying at all. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. <laughs> you got that angle to, to consider. Even when you aren't mentioning me at all. <laughs> Here I am. All right. Um, shall we keep I'm over there? Let's finish off the chapter, eh? Yeah. Eh? Eh? I'm, I'm fully, my transition to Wisconsin life is complete. Northern Wisconsin. Northern Wisconsin. All right, verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at once on the 23rd day of Sivan, the third month. Whatever Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews was written to the satraps, governors, and officials of the provinces from India to Kush, 127 provinces in all. They wrote to each province in its own writing system and to each people in its own language, including to the Jews in their writing system and in their language. He wrote in the name of King Xerxes and sealed it with the king's signet ring. He sent letters by messengers mounted on the king's fastest thoroughbreds. The king gave the Jews in every city the right to gather together to defend their own lives and to destroy, kill, and annihilate any military force of any people or province that might attack them along with their children and their wives, and to plunder their goods. In all the provinces of King Xerxes, a copy of writing which was issued as a law for every province proclaimed to all the peoples on one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, Adar, the Jews would be ready to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding their swift horses went out quickly, spurred on by the word of the king. The decree originated in Susa, the citadel. Mordecai went out from the king's presence, dressed in blue and white royal clothing with a large gold crown and a purple linen cape. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. It was a time of light, gladness, joy, and honor for the Jews. In every province and in every city which the message of the king reached, his edict brought gladness and joy to the Jews. There was a feast and a holiday. Many of the peoples of the land declared themselves to be Jews because the fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. There you go. So what do you want to say about um, you have uh, a new edict that goes out and um, maybe maybe for us, describe what that edict is. I think I like the idea of the edict going in every satrap and every language that gives us the uh, a picture of the enormity of his empire. So it, 
if you're looking at somebody who can't negate a, a rule that he already made, he only has to move forward. He only has to progress in that direction. You could see kind of why because of all of the all of the infrastructure that needs to be needs to happen. If you're going to reverse something that you did in the past, you just have to continue to build on that. So good, bad, or indifferent, I can I can kind of see why he would always be yeah. only doing positive things and not negative things. On the other hand, I mean, it's still it's still a mess. It's still politics. Um, it's still government uh, being uh, the government where it makes oh, simple things complicated. Slow. Yeah, and government works slow. There you go. Uh, I, I do like. I guess I never really had that insight, but that is a really good insight to have in in the sense of when you're dealing with so many cultures and you're dealing with such a great expanse of territory, you make a law. You you can't just be making a law and then removing a law and then making you 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 kind of got to continue to progress forward. So if you made a law that that doesn't work, you're going to have to make another one that sort of counteracts that. And I like that idea that that you know yeah. I guess I never looked at it that way because that's not how the, you know, in the United States, we have a president that comes and then all of a sudden the next president vetoes everything <laughs> right? That the, that the one did. So, I mean, we don't really work that way. Um, but, but I can understand with the size of the nation working that way saying, okay, well, it's on the books, but we have this to counter that. Um, it, 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 it was job security for lawyers. <laughs> And then, okay, let's go at the the content of the edict itself, the right to defend themselves from any force that would move against them, to defend not just the men, but the women and the children. So this gave the Jews um, the right to bear arms against anybody that would give them any kind of problems. Right, which is um, very, very fundamental in our law still today. Mm-hmm. is you have a right to defend yourself. And we had a conversation about that when I was teaching this to the kids, um, this idea of what does it mean to defend yourself? And and we, so we had a conversation of, of equal force, uh, which I know isn't necessarily in the text, but it is. Um, but the idea of one coming to annihilate, one coming to destroy, one coming to, to end your life, that you have then the ability to retaliate in, in like measure. And so I used the example with the kids. I said, so if you have a guy who comes and he is, he, um, he just has his fists. He's a really big guy and he comes to a a much smaller woman and he beats, he's going to beat on her. He's going to, he's going to hit her hard. Um, I said, how can the woman retaliate? What, what is her right? And, um, some of the kids were like, well, she could use mace. Well, if you have mace, I suppose. Um, or she could use a club. Um, and I said, I suppose. I said, could she use a gun? And some of the kids were like, well, no, because he has fists. And I said, but he actually, as this, because of his size. Can kill with he, those fists. He could, he could kill her with those fists. Yeah. So because of the situation, I said, she could retaliate in like manner, Right. I said, now, if I was standing in front of that guy and that guy came up to me and he same guy, but it was me instead of a a, a smaller woman, I said, would I be able to retaliate with a gun? And they're like, well, she could, you could. And I'm like, no, I can't because I'm pushing 300 pounds. And if I got smacked in the head, the chances are I'll break a tooth. (laughs) You know, it could break my nose, but I'm, 
the, right. the likelihood of me dying from that is less. It is interesting in the Old Testament when God set up his civil law, he's like, like, if somebody breaks into your house in the middle of the night and so you can't determine whether you can respond in equal force and you kill that individual, then you're not put to death because of that or you're not whatever the consequence was in, this, in the Old Testament. But if it's during the day and you respond more in force to the force that is brought to you, then there's, you know, civil re- repercussions. And so... Um, that it's a it's a fascinating concept, and it's also um, something for us also to remember when Jesus talks about when someone strikes you, you turn the other's cheek. And that's right. the, the the Christian's response is, yeah, we may have as as God uh, put government in place, trying to um, equal the scales for the Christian. Sometimes we are not going to assert our right to respond in equal force, but rather let something happen to us so that the gospel might be proclaimed. Right. That being but said, you have, you, have, right. you, have, you have Paul doing the same thing where he, at certain times, he doesn't assert his rights and sometimes he does. So he, Paul is always evaluating how does the gospel ministry, how is it advancing forward, whether I assert my right or not. And that's one of the things I think is, is kind of the take home from the book is, is they have a choice they're given the opportunity to do this and we're going to see it play out that in some places very little happens in other places, a lot of things happen. Um, and, and really it's the, and maybe it to, to give it a, just a little bit of a twist in our, for our listeners today and, and how to apply it for today. It's the opportunity for us to say, just because we have the right to do something doesn't mean we should do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're going to see that coming up and in, in how this plays out as we end the, this chapter or end this book next week, um, what happens and we can have a, a really deeper discussion of how far you can go. But I think it, it is something to be said that it is a joyous occasion when people are given the right to live. That is a joyous occasion. We see That's it here in, the, in this, that, that you are given the right to live. That doesn't mean you have to live. That doesn't mean you have to practice that right. Um, many people, especially coming into this weekend, gave up that right to live for other people to have that right, for other people to to um, continue to thrive in, in what was given to them. Um, so you can do that. But on the opposite side, we all have a right to to live in this world that God has given and God has created. Um, and, and no one has, should have the right to be able to take that from you. Um, and so there's, there's the beautiful interplay here of, of what's going on and the preservation of course, of God's people, uh, for the promise of the savior to come. Uh, I, I really don't want to say too much more because we, we're going to see this, this edict play out in nine and 10 next week. And, and that going to wrap everything up and we're going to have a lot more to say about about those rights that they have and how they practice them well and some of the good things that happened from it. Um, so I don't want to really say too much more about that, but I want to say, you know, the Lord is working his promise of sending a savior. He has to preserve his people so that can happen. So we, we see it in the background. Um, and uh, I don't know much more to say other than let's maybe wrap this one up so that next week we have some some good conversation on on the fallout. So join us next week. Casting Nets.